Well, Titus and I almost met. Closest I've come to catching him in a long time. How you all doing? Good. Good. Oh, I'm having a good day, and I'm a happy peppy. BR greased me up this morning like a pig, and I'm ready to go. Uh, well, I'm almost ready to go. I don't have a computer, so we'll think about this just a moment. Is it going to be long, honey? Well, do I need to do a song and dance? <laughs> I better skip that part. I can't dance anymore. I want to talk about some things this morning. It's very important to me. It's important to the Lord, I know, and it needs to be important to all of us. But I'm going to go about it kind of in a strange way. What I'd like to do is uh, I'm going to go over a few things we all know already. Uh, just as a reminder, and then when we get the very last slide, I want to make my point. So uh, if you could bear with me as we read a lot of scriptures, uh, when we come to the end, uh, I want to make what's a very, very important point. I want you to know that uh, I'm probably one of the proudest preachers I know of. Sometimes I think I'm a little bit disgusting, but uh, I can't imagine any preacher in anywhere that's uh, more happy to be where he is than I am. Uh, I love this church. I love you folks. Uh, you make me uh, you make me so happy. Uh, you get bragged down so much, my head gets so swelled up. It's just almost over the top. But uh, anytime I speak, uh, I'm speaking to those who may need to hear what I have to say. Sometimes it only pertains to a few. Sometimes it pertains to all of us. But this lesson really isn't about education. It's about remembering who we are at all times. And uh, I want to stop talking now and get on with it. Uh, God is a holy person. And this I know we're all aware of. Holiness is a trait that we should possess. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? Very important. They shall see God. Everyone won't see God. But the pure in heart, the pure, pure is undefiled, doesn't have any uh, black specks. It's a pure white, like white flower without any bugs. A pure heart is similarly without anything that might taint it. Jesus said, blessed are those folks. They're sincere, they're honest, they're doing the very best they can. Because those are the people who will see God. Well, everybody will see God, so obviously he means it in a different manner. They're going to see God now while they live. Oh, we don't see God like you can see me, but you perceive God. You know what God is like, not what he looks like, but you know his character. You know what he likes, what he dislikes. You know what moves him to both joy and anger. Blessed are the pure in heart. Because they're going to know God in that manner. That's what he's talking about. In Leviticus 11 and 4, speaking to the children of Israel, Jehovah said, I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves. You shall be holy, for I am holy. A holy person is one who abstains from things that defile. To the best of our ability, we're never perfect, so we're not talking about perfection. But a person who's trying to walk with the Lord, 
You are to be holy because I am holy. And when you think about it, logically, it makes all kinds of sense. When you and I are holy, knowing that the Lord is holy, we are compatible with him. He's invited us to live with him throughout eternity. What a mess it would be if we were nothing at all like him. We wouldn't be able to stand each other in heaven. Heaven would be a hateful place for most of the world. They couldn't stand that kind of an environment because it's not who they are. Only the pure in heart would have the appetite for a place like heaven. So be holy. Be like me, Jehovah says. Then we will be compatible. Peter said, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Everything you do, be holy. Simple, pure. Integrity, honesty. Be the best version of yourself you can be. Becoming like God. God did not call us to uncleanness, Paul said, but to holiness. The Hebrews author said, pursue holiness and go after it with all your might. Without which holiness, you can't see God. No one will see the Lord if they are not of a holy nature. The invisible can only be seen, perceived by the holy heart. Godliness is also a characteristic we're taught much about. 1 Timothy 4 and 8. Bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness, oh, godliness, it's profitable for all things. And with it comes a promise of the life that now is the presence of God and of that which is to come eternal life. Godliness is a necessary attribute that we possess that we can not only be like God, but that we can live with God in perfect harmony. Paul told Timothy, you, O man of God, flee these things. He's talking about the love of money in the first 10 verses. Flee these things. Don't, don't get all tangled up in the world's way. Pursue righteousness and godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Rather than spending your time loving the world and the things that are in the world. Pursue me is what God is saying. Know me. Walk with me. And finally live with me. Righteousness is yet another characteristic we read about over and over and over. These are very major Bible themes. Very major New Testament themes. We are to be righteous. John said in 1 John 3 and 7, little children, let no one deceive you, beguile you, misguide you, or mislead you. He who practices righteousness, he who actually does righteousness. What about this person, John? He's a righteous person. In this, what he's about to say, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest, visible before our eyes. We can see the difference between a child of God and a child of the devil. What is that, John? What is it that reveals this to us, this great knowledge? Whoever does not practice righteousness, 
you know that person is not of God. They say they are, but you know they're not. Why? Because righteous people practice righteousness. And those who fail to practice righteousness are not righteous. Why? Well, maybe something's just missing in the heart. Maybe a complete conversion has never been made yet. Maybe a person hasn't really given themselves over to God at this point in time in their life. Maybe they will. We hope they will. We pray they will. But at the moment, something's missing. And we need to help people acquire that most essential characteristic of righteousness. It's only when we have a real reason to be righteous that we'll pursue righteousness. If the motive isn't there, the characteristic won't be there either. John's encouraging us. He's not belittling us, but he's encouraging us to know ourselves, to know our brethren, and help one another along life's challenging way. Holiness, godliness, righteousness must be pursued, must be learned, must be practiced to become who we are. Paul wrote, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't walk to the beat of the world's drummer. Walk with Christ as best you can. Walk with him. In Romans 6, 1 through 11, we have a rather lengthy reading. Paul raises a question that every Christian must entertain. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? I was saved by grace. I was a sinner. And because I was a sinner, God extended grace to me. I received grace because I was a sinner. I want more grace, and you do too. What shall we do? Continue to sin that we might receive more grace? That's his question. And apparently that's what some people thought, and they were pursuing. Well, certainly not. That should not be our mindset. We're a new creature. We've been changed. We're supposed to walk in a different direction. You know the difference between a person who wants to be baptized and a person who has just been baptized? The person who has just been baptized is wet. From that moment forward, that old person must become a new person. And we're going to spend the rest of our life trying to do that. We're never going to reach a touchdown, but we're going to get closer and closer and closer and closer to the goal. Continue in sin. God forbid we continue in sin. We're supposed to go forward, not backwards. How should we who died to sin live any longer in it? I gave up sin when I became a Christian. How can I dabble in it now? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, Jesus were baptized into his death? We all know that very well. 
We're taught and taught and taught and taught about such matters. Therefore, we were buried with Jesus through baptism into death. We died and we were raised from the dead from that water grave. That just as Christ, just as he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so you and I should walk in newness of life. We're different. We've changed. We have a different purpose. We have a different goal. We aspire to new things. How could such a person dabble in sin? Paul's asking. If we have been united together in the likeness of Jesus' death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Just as he was alive and well after being raised from the dead, even so you and I, having been immersed in water, should be alive and well as well. And sin is death. Of course we can't dabble in sin. This would be bad. Oh, bad. Knowing this, that, our old man was crucified with the Lord. That sinner John, he's dead. I'm not a sinner anymore. I sin, but I'm not a sinner. I was a sinner because I pursued sin. I willingly, of my own volition, chose to sin, and I did so. I lived a life in sin. That made me a sinner. Today, I'm trying to live a life without sin. So I'm not a sinner anymore. But I do sin from time to time. And I have to repent and ask forgiveness. But the sinner, he's dead. He's gone. He doesn't live anymore. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified, that to this end the body of sin might be done away with, that to this end we shall no longer be slaves of sin. And we're not. We've been made free. Remember what Jesus said in John 8, 32, you shall know the truth, and said truth shall make you free. We were in bondage. We broke through those bonds. Now we are free people and we don't have to sin anymore. We found a better way to live. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, both in this world and in the world to come, knowing we know that Christ having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him nor us. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. We died to sin, and now, like our Lord, we too live for God. Likewise, you also, the mind we're supposed to possess, Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is to be our mindset. Sin is a bad thing. Sin is a terrible thing. Sin is a horrible thing. 
I watched my mother die a very extremely painful death. She had cancer. And altogether, she probably suffered for about two and a half years, but the last year, the last year was horrible. You know what it's like to sit there and watch someone you love so very, very much shrivel up, dry up, agonizing pain, and there's nothing you can do about it. I know you know. We've all been through it. And it makes me so angry that there's nothing I can do about it. I'm, I wasn't used to that at one time. I am now. It's, it's the way it is. But when Mama was dying, I wasn't used to it, not one little bit. Something else I know, that the only reason that happened to her is because of sin. Because of sin, the death penalty was imposed, Romans 6.23. Paul calls it a wage, the wages of sin, what you earned through sin. Not necessarily that a person suffering suffers because they personally sinned and this led to the suffering, but because of sin in general. The greatest enemy you and I have is sin. There's no greater enemy at all. It causes us all the pain we ever feel. Had it not been for sin, we would not have even known what pain was. At least not in that sense. The worst kind of pain of all, when somebody you love suffers and you can't do nothing, wouldn't have happened. Sin is the culprit. I was a sinner, and I quit being a sinner. Because the pain and the suffering was more than I could bear. But the suffering goes on. If there's anything we should hate, it should be sin. Knowing what we know, we should hate sin. So why do we dabble in it? Why do we dabble in it? Knowing all the suffering it's led to. The Hebrews author said in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, to the Son, that's Jesus, the Father said, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, he knew the suffering it caused. He knew it. He knew it better than you and I will ever know it. And God speaking to his son, the kingdom belongs to you. Why? 
you love righteousness and you you hate lawlessness therefore for that reason god your god has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions because of his righteousness and his disdain for unrighteousness god crowned his son as the king of kings. The Lord wants us to be of the same mind. We love righteousness. We hold unrighteousness in contempt. And we have every reason in the world to do so. Because it's the cause of all of our, our pain. But why do we dabble in sin? Hate evil, love good, Amos said. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, Paul said. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil, Paul said. We know we're supposed to abstain from evil. We don't practice it. We don't practice evil because we know it's evil to practice evil. But equally important, as pointed out by all three of our writers, well, two of our writers, is that we are to love good, cling to what is good, hold fast to what is good, pursue righteousness, godliness, holiness, and leave evil in the wake. For this you know, Paul wrote that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. They can't live with God. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Do not partake of their sins. Have no dealings with the sins they're engaged in. Do not compliment them for their sinful ways. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them, their sin and the consequences of that sin. With regard to marriage, divorce, and remarriage, one of the most challenging subjects any preacher ever deals with. We are to remember we are not to be partakers with those who violate God's law. I'm not saying we can't have any dealings with them, but we can't do anything to encourage them in a sinful pursuit. We can't do that. It would be wrong to do that. We are to have no fellowship, not be a partaker of the sinful act they're about to engage in. To have nothing to do with it. But rather, we should expose it. Because of our love for those, rather than encouraging, exhorting them, we will explain to them that you're headed down a path 
And there's no way back. Jesus said, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. The exception clause is something we're familiar with. There's a general rule, but there's an exception to that rule. Do not divorce once you're married. But, but, if your spouse has betrayed you and committed adultery, if you can't deal with it, you have the right by God to put that person away with a writing of divorce. But that doesn't have anything to do with what I'm talking about, so let's get rid of that. And read the statement as the Lord meant to make it. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. I heard Brother Guy in Woods one time. He said, you know, that's not hard to understand. He said, it's hard to accept, but it's not hard to understand. And I, I have to agree with him. The terms are very simple. But questions I have to ask myself, questions for me, and questions for you. Number one, would Jesus encourage fornication? I believe we would be in agreement and say no. Would Jesus encourage adultery? Again, we are in full agreement, no. Would he encourage homosexuality? Why are you asking me these questions? You know he was righteous and he abhorred unrighteousness. Of course the answer is no, he wouldn't engage in such a thing. Would he encourage lying, cheating, or stealing? Would Jesus encourage someone in any sin in any way? Obviously, no. Well, the next question. Should I? And here's what I wanted to talk about. I don't read the Facebook. I don't even understand it, to be honest with you. But I get... I guess they call them screenshots or something. I get screenshots sent to me. And sometimes the things I read, they, they make me very ashamed. And they make my heart hurt. Because some of the things that are written on the Facebook, they're not good for consumption, period. But then some of the things that are written on the Facebook is about someone's pursuit of sin. Generally having to do with homosexuality, getting into adultery, wanting to divorce a husband or a wife for just a frivolous reason they have. Well, I'm kind of used to all that stuff. But what hurts me and makes me so sad is when I see somebody's name and it says like or heart. If you do that, you are encouraging someone in godless activity, which is something you should not do. 
before you like something or heart it, it ought to be something worthy of your like or heart. But there are many people from everywhere who must like it or heart it because they don't want to upset the person that they're addressing. They're making the Lord angry in order to keep from making another person angry. That's an unwise decision. And what's frightening about that to me is that it evidences that something's missing. Something isn't just right yet. And sometimes I know the people who love and heart stuff. And to be honest with you, I'm shocked. I had no idea. If someone had just told me it, I wouldn't have believed it. But I get these things, and I have to see what's going on in a world that I really don't want nothing to do with. And sometimes I've cried about it because it disturbs me. When I tell you I love you, I am not spewing words. This is my life. This is the alpha and omega of my life. Everything I do, I do for us. And my passion is so strong, I take it so personally when something goes sideways. And imagine how the Lord feels. He can read them things too. And then there's something else I want you to ponder. If you encourage someone in adultery or homosexuality, or sin of any stripe. You're encouraging them to hell. You embolden them. You, a godly person, you are all for it. It can't be bad. It must be okay, because so-and-so wouldn't have said so. But they hearted me. And you could have blood on your hands to boot. Think. Always think. When you put something in print on that Facebook, it's going to be there forever. It ain't going away. Take it off your computer if you want to. It's up in a cloud somewhere. And it won't go away. Think. Think about who you are. Think about what you stand for. Think about what your purpose is. Seeking and saving the lost. Not encouraging them in the pathway of sin. We have been called to righteousness and to abhor unrighteousness. Yeah, we sin. But we can still do that.
we can still pursue righteousness and abhor unrighteousness, even when it's found in ourselves. You must go to heaven. I'm like Paul. I could just imagine watching you trickle in as you come. I could imagine the joy he had as he anticipated what was to come. Victory each time. Each time one comes, victory. But a failure would be the loss of the worst kind. Look into your heart. You know where you live. Judge yourself. Judge yourself. 